That was the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And does anybody else here listen to this group? They're pretty well known. Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You know, Carol Cimbala, with her husband, Jim, in 1972, took over a small church in New Jersey. Brooklyn, sorry, Brooklyn, New York. And their Sunday attendance averaged around 20 to 30 people per week. And they had part-time jobs because the church couldn't afford their salaries, much less benefits or anything else. <clears throat> and out of that 20 to 30 people per week, she hijacks nine for the choir. <clears throat> now, Carol Simbola had no musical training. She had no degrees. She had no history. Though her father was well-known as a singer, she had no, no personal history herself in music. She had no degree. She had no expertise or credentials by which to do anything. But of course, nine people in a little church, who cares, right? Do whatever you want. You know, get, recruit anybody who's willing. So she did. Well, you know, today, this is almost 40 years later, uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, 285 voices. Matt, they're so big, you and I could probably sing and we'd be covered. <laughs> we'd fit in because nobody could hear us. 285 voices, five Grammy Awards, numerous Dove Awards. They've traveled around the world. They worship with about 10,000 people every week. Now, imagine if you're Carol Simbola and somebody comes up to you and says, Carol, you know, back in the day when we were nine people or 15 or 20 and you were leading us, that was okay. You did a pretty nice job. But, you know, we've come to realize you really shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You know, you're not a graduate of Juilliard. You have none of the credentials that we think are important. And you got us started. Maybe that was okay. But now we don't think you're a choir director. Now, Carol Simula could say a number of things, and I don't know what she'd say if this group came up and challenged her ability to lead a choir. But I know one of the responses she could have would just be this. Guys, you are my credentials. The group that would come up and challenge her from the choir saying, we don't think you're a choir director, all she has to do is say, guys, you are my credentials. Every time you sing, this is the fruit of my labor, my investment. The fact that there's a choir at all is because I started it. And it's grown. This wouldn't be her bragging. This would just be the facts, wouldn't it? We're looking for your credentials. We don't think you're impressive enough. Well, you're my credentials. You're my letter. You're my letter of commendation. We're in a text this morning in 2 Corinthians 3 in which Paul's credentials are being called into question. And it's sort of like <clears throat> Paul is the guy who's, who got the choir going. When there wasn't a church in Corinth, when there wasn't a Christian in, in the city of Corinth, Paul was the guy that came in and got things going. But there's now a question, Paul, we're not really sure you're our guy. We're not sure you have the kind of credentials we're looking for in our apostle. We're not sure we should really be listening to you. And so like Carol Cimbala, Paul turns around basically and says to this church, you are our letter. You're, you're the evidence of my call to be an apostle. If you've got a study sheet, I'm going to start at the last verse in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, and we'll read through verse 6 in chapter 3. Paul says there, we are not like many and he's probably referring to the folks who are opposing him here in Corinth. We're not like many peddling the Word of God, selling ourselves or selling God's Word, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, 
in the sight of God. Chapter 3, in saying this, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, we're only going to focus on two points here this morning. Normally you get three-point sermons. This is two points this morning. Paul brings up the whole subject of a new covenant in this and the Holy Spirit versus the old. We're not going to get into that at all this morning. It starts here. We'll get into that next time here. But the first of the two points I want to cover is this whole thing about Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves? Do we need letters of commendation to you or from you? You know, back in the day, in Paul's day, if you were traveling from one city to another, if Mike was going from one city to another, let's say from one synagogue to another, and the folks in the town I'm going to, they don't know me, but I think I should go there and preach. Well, why would they listen to me when I get there? But you know what? If I'm coming from Jerusalem, and if the Sanhedrin gives me a letter and says, guys, you know who we are, and we're vouching for this guy in this letter, we're telling you that Mike is okay, you should let him preach on Sunday morning or Sabbath in the case of the Jews. A letter of commendation which someone you knew and trusted was vouching for someone you didn't. This was common actually historically right up until recent times. Letters of commendation. And in fact, in Paul's own life, in his own history, Acts 22.5 talks about this. When Paul was in Jerusalem and when he's arrested by the Romans there at the Temple Mount, and he says, hey guys, let me talk to my people here for a little bit. He reminds them that back in the day when he was Saul of Tarsus, he says, The high priest and all the council of the elders can testify from them. I received letters to the brethren, and I started off for Damascus. So when Paul was on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, he had a letter in his hand. It was a letter of commendation. It was from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, so that when he gets to Damascus, he hands it to the guys in the synagogue, and he says, Hey, guys, I'm here on official business. You don't know me, but you can trust me. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem has vouched for me. I've got letters here that tell you who I am. I'm your man. You can trust me. So apparently in Corinth, and one of the things that makes teaching through this, 2 Corinthians has been the most difficult book in the Bible I've ever taught through. And when I read the introduction to one of the commentaries I used to keep me honest, it said this is one of the most difficult books to teach through. And I thought, no way. I know this letter pretty well. Shouldn't be hard. You know, one of the themes, this whole thing about Paul's defense of himself, explaining himself, weaves through all of this letter. It's an undercurrent through everything. And so on one hand, you try and recognize it. On the other hand, you try not to beat the same drum, you know, boringly and slowly. But apparently in Corinth, there's this group of guys, they've come in. And we've talked about this before, but it's here again this morning. They're sort of saying this, look, this Paul guy... We look better than Paul. We speak better than Paul. And you know what else? We have letters of commendation. We're official. We're sanctioned by somebody that you should 
listen to. We've got our letters of commendation, but this Paul, he doesn't. Who is this guy anyway? And why did you listen to him? Why did you let him in? We're the real deal. Now, this undertow in Corinth, Paul never calls anybody by name, by the way. He refers to them. He infers about them. At chapter 11, he actually calls them out by name. Or excuse me, he, he defines who they are. He says they're servants of Satan. Chapter 11, he, he describes them as clearly as it gets. But he never names them, but they're there, and they're, they create the undertow of everything that's going on in this letter about Paul's defense of himself. So they're saying, we're official. We've got credentials, and he doesn't. And so Paul says, guys, listen. If I needed credentials, I wouldn't go to Jerusalem. I wouldn't go to Philippi or Thessalonica or Athens. You know, Corinth was not far from Athens. Athens was the center of the Greek world. Important city in Roman times like Paul's too. I don't need to go to Athens either to get a letter from anybody to commend me to you. Because guys, if I need to be validated as an evangelist and an apostle, all I do is point to you. You are verses 2 and 3. You are our letter. You've been written in our hearts, and you're obviously written by us as others can clearly see. So if you're calling my apostleship into question, Paul says, all I need to do is point to you. If I'm not an apostle, Paul's inferring, where did you come to faith? How did you come to faith if God hasn't called me as an evangelist and an apostle? If I'm not an apostle, how did the church in Corinth, of which you're a part, start? If I'm not an apostle, if I'm not sanctioned by God, if I'm not His man, then how does your faith exist at all? How can you even call my apostleship into question, which is based on a claim of Christianity, which you got from me? So Paul's whole thing is here, questioned by the church in Corinth, it's, guys, you are our letter. You're the proof of God's call on my life. I don't need to go to someplace else. As a matter of fact, if I needed a letter to some other group, I wouldn't take a letter from you anyway. I'd just say, you know, the church in Corinth, that's me. That's there because God commissioned me to spread the gospel, and I've planted churches, and Corinth, that's one of them. So to this, this claim that, Paul, we're not really sure you're up to the task. We're not sure you're our kind of a guy because you lack some specific credentials Paul says guys you are my credentials you are our letter now imagine if I'm farmer Jones and I till a patch of ground and I uh, fertilize it and do all the things you do water and I plant carrots and the carrots come up and one of the carrots opens his eyes and looks at farmer Jones and says I don't think you're a farmer Farmer Jones, well, I'm a farmer because you're here. I planted you, you're here, that means I'm a farmer, or a gardener at least, or whatever. You know, imagine you're a potter, and you take a lump of wet clay, and you put it on the wheel, and you turn the wheel, and you put your hands around it, you press that clay, you form it by your will, by your effort, by your work, you glaze it and you fire it, you got some nice glazed ceramic pot there, and the pot looks at you and says, I don't think you're a potter. Your existence means I am a potter. Or how about this, closer to home, just in relationship. Let's say little Johnny 
looks at you, his dad, and, and he looks around at other dads, and he thinks maybe you're short. No offense to short people, but maybe you're short and all the other dads are tall. Or maybe you're bald and all the other dads have hair. Who knows what it might be. Official credentials to little Johnny might look like. But little Johnny looks around at the other dads and for some reason you don't measure up. And so little Johnny looks up at you at his dad and he says, Dad, I don't think you're my dad. So dad just says to Junior, well, Junior, I am your dad because you're here. And anyone else knows you're my son too because all they have to do is look at you and know you're my son. I have an older brother with a great sense of humor. He's a great guy and he laughs a lot. And his face shows the laugh lines. So one day he's talking to his son and his son's sort of not always sure that my brother Joe should be his dad. You know, he's that kind of a guy. And so my brother points at his face, lined with laughing wrinkles, and he says to his son, Inevitability. <laughs> You're my son. You look like me. You talk like me. Inevitability. I love that. No way around it. So to this charge that the church is bringing up to Paul where they say, hey, guy, we're not sure you have the right kind of credentials. Paul just turns around and he says, guys, you are my credentials. You are our letter of commendation from God or to anyone else. You're it. Your faith, the existence of the church, those are the letters. Those are all the letters I need. That's what commends us. We don't need anything else. The second point Paul makes here, and the one I want to spend the rest of our time on, is this whole issue of adequacy. Adequacy. He talks about this in verses 4, 5, and 6. Paul says he's confident towards God, not because he has some inherent competence of his own, but for two reasons I want to point out. One is God has sovereignly called him, and the other is Paul says quite clearly that God has made him adequate in his role as an apostle an evangelist. <clears throat> if you're called to any important work in life, it's really important for you to know, to have absolutely no question, that you are where God wants you to be and that you are doing what God wants you to do. Uh, all of us need some kind of rock-solid foundation like this if we're going to invest significantly in life for eternity, with, it, with eternity in mind. Um, if, you, if you do anything for Christ, there's going to be opposition. We live the world, the flesh, and the devil. Satan's out to hamper what God does. He, he tries to rob, kill, and destroy. We're in an antagonistic place. So anything that's going to count for Christ is going to run into opposition. If we don't know coming in on whatever it is we're called to do, that we're where God wants us, doing what God's called us to do, there's a sense of, of uneasiness. There's a sense of anxiety because then trouble comes up. And we start questioning ourselves. Maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And so, you know, in the church, sometimes we highlight things like spiritual gifts. We say, hey, God, by His Spirit, has given each one of us gifts, and it's through those gifts that He wants us to serve each other. And that's true. But there's also this, this whole thing about calling. And uh, I'm going through a book, a significant book, with some other guys in the church about this whole notion of calling that God we don't just get saved and he just doesn't give us gifts and somehow he turns us loose but he actually has specific things he wants us to be about and I'm not talking about navel gazing till God speaks from heaven and says 
David, go here, or, you know, or there, or whatever. But we need a sense that God has a clear purpose for us and that he has called us to a specific task, specific place, a specific time. We need that. Paul had that in spades. So when someone calls Paul into question about an apostle, he doesn't, this doesn't even stir him. There's no anxiety level here at all because he is so confident that he's where God wants him to be, doing what God wants him to do. Paul knows he's called as an apostle. So for instance, I, I think you've got these verses on your study sheet. In Acts 9, verse 15, when Paul was taking that letter of commendation from Jerusalem to Damascus, do you remember what God does to him? He knocks him down on the road, doesn't he? Blinding light, voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul is led blind by the hand into the city of Damascus. And God's got a guy there named Ananias. And God says to Ananias, hey, get up, go to this street, to this house, go to this guy. And Saul of Tarsus is there, I want you to pray for him. Now Ananias says, Lord, let me fill you in on a few details. This Saul of Tarsus, he's not a good guy. This is a bad plan. But God says to Ananias, Acts 9.15, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. Ananias, you don't get it. I've chosen Paul. He's my chosen vessel. He's my chosen ambassador to the Gentiles primarily, but also to kings and also to the sons of Israel, the nation of Israel. I've called him. Now, when Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians including the letter we're looking at this morning. Each time he wrote them, this is how he started. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. When Paul writes these guys, this isn't sort of uh, self-importance. When he writes them, he says, I am God's ambassador. God's called me. And so the words you hear from me, they're God's words. You know, to be an apostle meant to be officially commissioned and sent out on behalf of someone else. In the New Testament sense, it's the sense of those specifically designated by Christ, sent out as his ambassadors, his spokesmen, with his authority. And that's what Paul's saying. Guys, it's not that I'm self-important, but I speak with Christ's authority because he's called me as an apostle. Now, in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, you see something very similar. There Paul says... God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul goes back further than the road to Damascus and he says, in the womb, before I saw the light of day, God had laid His hand on me and called me and said, you're my man. You're going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. Now if you read this in Galatians, Hopefully this sounds familiar. And I'm sure as Paul's writing this, he's thinking of Jeremiah. If you read Jeremiah 1, what does God say to Jeremiah? Before you were born, I knew you. When you were in the womb, I called you. And what did I call you to be? My prophet to the Gentiles, to the nations. It's not verbatim, but it's awfully close. And you know, Jeremiah, kind of like Moses before him, Jeremiah says, the Lord, I'm a young guy. I think you should look for someone else. You know, and God says to Jeremiah, no, you're my man. You're young, that's okay. You're going to be like a a brass wall. No one will be able to take you down. You're my man. Well, Paul, these many years later, says, God set me aside from my womb. He made me his spokesman.
to the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. From the womb, from before his birth. Last verse along this line, Ephesians 3.8, Paul there says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So, when the Corinthian church says to Paul, we're not sure you're really apostolic stuff. We're not really sure you have the kind of credentials we're looking for. It doesn't ruffle his feathers. No anxiety. Because Paul says, no, this is who I am. This is what I am. And this is because of God's call on my life. This is a settled issue. Settled entirely. When we endeavor to do something in Christ's name, in Christ's cause, guys, we need some sense that God has called us. We haven't just launched a ship on our own ingenuity, on our own efforts. We think this sounds like a good idea because when opposition comes, and it will, we need some settled sense. This is what God's called me to do. There's an old movie, The Blues Brothers, I'm on a mission from God. We need that sense of mission and call. God's called me. Can't get away from it no matter what anybody else thinks. I know God's called me. Paul knew. I'm called beyond question. Can't get away from it. The second thing, though, he says is, Paul says, my adequacy is not in myself. Christ, God, provide my adequacy. Because God's, on one hand, God's call is God's provision. If God calls us to do something, He's going to provide the adequacy to do that. So when we say, Lord, if you've called me, I trust you for whatever it is I need. You know, oftentimes I think uh, we tend to be fearful people. And so we might think, God, you know, ask me to do some little thing that I can do. God's not interested in the things we can do. He's interested in the things He can do. And so sometimes we get a sense of call. I think God may want me to do something, but it scares me. That's okay. Because if God's called us, he's on, he's, the bill's to Him. If God's behind the call, He'll provide for it. And so Paul says here, guys, I'm adequate as an apostle. One, because Christ has called me, but two, because Christ Himself is my adequacy. God is my adequacy. He says this in verse 5, Our adequacy is from God, verse 6, God who made us adequate servants of His new covenant. Paul had such a sense on one level of his new identity in Christ that Paul knew that wherever Paul goes, Christ goes. Wherever Paul goes, God is there. So for instance, just life verses, Galatians 2.20, Paul says about who he is and about where his sufficiency for anything could come from. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. So Paul says, in fact, Philippians 1, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Paul says, I'm so bound up in Christ, Christ is so bound up in me, that wherever I go, Christ goes with me. So if God calls me to a particular thing, I don't have to worry about my adequacy. I don't have to worry that I don't have what it takes to get this job done because Christ is my adequacy. He's the bottom line. 
He's called me. He's in me. He's with me. Christ is my adequacy. That's what we need a sense of. Now, you know, Paul had all kinds of things that he could have said, these are my adequacies. You know, this guy had, he was a PhD of PhDs. Paul had studied under Gamaliel. He was one of the most important rabbis of his day. He was a very highly academically trained Jewish guy. He knew a lot. But he never boasts here that that was his adequacy. He could have. He could have said, these are my academic credentials, but he doesn't. Even though God used those. You know, his, his knowledge of the Old Testament, you see that throughout his epistles. But that's not what he boasted in as far as being sufficient for the call to be an apostle, an evangelist. Or, you know, he also could have said, he could have boasted about this uh, energy level. You know, he just keeps going and going and going. He gets knocked down, beat down, locked up, locked in, you name it, and he just keeps going. But he doesn't say, that's my adequacy either. He says, God is my adequacy. Christ is my adequacy. Wherever I go, Christ goes with me. Stop for just a second and ask yourself, where has God called me? And to what has God called me in my life, the investment I'm supposed to be making in Christ's cause and in Christ's name? What do those calls look like? How has God gifted me? Where has he called me? To what has he called me? What does that look like? If you don't, th- if you don't come up with that right now, write it down later. Pray about it. Think about it. It's important. To what has Christ called me? And guys, this is the deal. <clears throat> Anything that God calls us to do, if it's a spiritual work, it has to be done by His Spirit. Because we bring no inherent power to bear on anything of a spiritual nature. So, in a group like ours here, some of us are called, we're married, that means we're called as a husband or a wife. This is an impossible task, is it not, to please another human being? Just get married, you know, just get married. Impossible. Supernatural. Herculean need to be able to please someone else. Uh, God uses that, though, doesn't he? We know we're called because we're married. We've said till death do us part. That's a given. But we can't spiritually get into somebody else's heart, our spouse. We can't change them. We can try and love or serve or respect. We can do all those things. But it's up to God to make that thing actually work, isn't it? Or if you're called as a parent, you know. We've got all kinds of guidelines, all kinds of promises in the Bible, all kinds of scriptures that talk about being a good parent. But at the end of the day, you can't save your son or your daughter. You can't get in and make them trust Christ. You cannot do it. Even if you think you can, you cannot. A spiritual birth takes a spiritual source, and that's not us. That's God and His Spirit. And you know, if you meet a new Christian, somebody who's been saved... You cannot make them grow in their faith as a disciple of Christ. You can't, can't do it. You can offer them everything you've got. You can suggest things that they might do. But you cannot make them grow. It's a spiritual work. It requires the power of God's Spirit. Anything that's of ultimate value, guys, you and I cannot do with the natural gifts, talents, strengths, whatever it is that we bring to bear, that cannot accomplish the ultimate ends God has for us on the earth. You remember in John 15, 5, uh, last night Jesus is with the guys before his crucifixion. And he says, hey guys, this is the deal. It's like I'm the vine. And they lived in an area of the world in which they cultivated grapes all the time. They knew they had an image for this. 
I'm the vine and you're the branches. I'm the big, thick, old stalk that's planted in the ground. And you know those vines like that? You can cut them off every year. The vine just grows new branches, doesn't it? You cut a branch off, what happens to it? Dries up in the sun, it's toast, it's history. So Jesus says, guys, I'm that thick root that goes down into the ground, and you're branches. And if you'll abide in me, I'll abide in you, and you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do not a little, not a medium, not a lot. Apart from me, Jesus says, in the power of his spirit, we can do nothing. Not a thing. So whatever the, whatever the elements are any one of us has in our life, great education, maybe financial wealth, uh, maybe great looks, maybe, uh, maybe a good sense of humor, whatever it is we bring to bear, may we think, that could make me adequate in Christ's cause. And the truth is, none of that stuff does. God can use anything we bring to bear. I don't mean to minimize that. But that's not what creates or brings about spiritual life or transformation. Only the Holy Spirit, only the power of God brings about spiritual rebirth and spiritual growth. And so if God's calling us to any work, we have no adequacy on our own. None. Because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul comes in when he's questioned about his adequacy and he says, guys, not my education, not my great birth. You go later in this letter to chapter 11 and he has what, what commentators call the fool's speech. Because there he says, you're impressed by external criteria and by worldly credentials. And so let me just tell you foolishly what mine are. And he goes into it. But it's called the fool's speech because Paul says, I'm speaking foolishly. Because none of these credentials at the end of the day mean anything to God as far as spiritual birth, spiritual life, spiritual growth. None of them matter. You know, the credentials we need are God's Spirit, God's call, God's gifts, God's enablings. That's what we need. And that's what Paul had. And so when he's called to question, no ruffled feathers. He's not worried about it. He doesn't wig out. He says, guys, I'm called as an apostle, and Christ is my adequacy. Now, caveat. Um, If I say God's called me, and that's my sufficiency in and of itself, then I, I can develop the let go and let God mentality, right? I sit back. God does all the work. I don't do anything. I'm passive. I'm at rest. You know, you just don't see this in Paul's writings at all. So if you look in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26 and 27, Paul says, uh, I'm running. He's describing his life, his outlook on life, his way of life. He says, I'm running in such a way as not without aim. You remember uh, Paul's near Athens and he's in Greece and they knew a thing or two about games and athletic competitions and so he speaks to them in an image they're familiar with. He says, I'm an athlete. I'm running in such a way as not without aim. I'm on the course. I'm running the race. I'm a boxer. I'm boxing in such a way as I'm not beating the air. I'm directing my blows. I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He says, guys, I'm in the race. I'm on the course. And interestingly, in 2 Timothy, the last book that he writes, he says, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. Maybe even thinking about this same passage. But he says, I see myself as an athlete. I'm working hard. I'm in training. 
I discipline myself for Christ's cause. I'm working hard, Paul says. Later in that same epistle, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, all the other apostles. Not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says, I'm called by God as an apostle and evangelist. And he says, Christ is my sufficiency. But he also says, and I work really hard to fulfill that responsibility I've been entrusted with. I work really, I train like an athlete. I discipline the choices in my life like an athlete competing in the games. I take nothing for granted. I work really hard. Now the application for me, for us, would be this again. Sorry as I'm a broken record here. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not meditating on the truth that is in the Scriptures, if you're not memorizing God's Word, you are not equipped and you are not adequate for the things God's going to require of you. You're not adequate. I can tell you that because, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, not only is all Scripture inspired and profitable, but it's the truth of the Scriptures that makes me adequate for every good work. When God calls me to something in His name, in Christ's cause, it's the truth of the Scriptures God uses in large part to make me adequate. If someone comes up to me and asks me a question, and I haven't studied the Bible, I don't know what to tell them. And guys, the Scripture applies to every area of life. If I'm wondering for myself or for someone else, what do I do in this situation? How do I help this person? The, the, the truth that I need is in the pages of my Bible. So when I give myself to study the Scriptures, to think about it, mull it over, turn it over in my mind, memorize it, make it a part of my life, my vocabulary, my thoughts, that equips me. This, the word is the same. It makes me adequate for the good works God wants me to be about. So I'm called, that's great. Christ is my adequacy, that's great. But part of Christ's adequacy in me or in us is the truth of His Word. And if we don't know what God has said, guys, we are not adequate. We've got to be in the Scriptures. The second thing is this. This whole arena of prayer... You know, if you teach on prayer, most, most Christians come in with a yawn. I mean, it's a, no, it's a non-starter. He's te- someone's teaching on prayer. Oh, wow. What's on the TV? Seriously. Because we don't pray. We don't pray seriously. We don't pray like the New Testament church prayed, I guarantee. We don't pray like Paul prayed. And you know what part of that, I think, is? It's because we think we're okay. We think we're adequate to pull off God's things without His power. Do you know that if we really know that God accomplishes His power by His Spirit and that we bring no sufficiency to this equation, you know what we do? We pray. We pray. You know, thinking about the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, this little church, 20 to 30 guys, it was, it was almost a joke. It was dying when they got there, the symbolists, in the early 70s. It's this thriving, world-changing life-shaping institution today. And you know what they credit it with? Prayer. In fact, Jim Simula said in one of his first sermons, he's up there and he's just dying. And he said he just stopped his teaching in the middle and he says, guys, we've got to pray. And it's the key characteristic of their church. You know, if we actually believe that only God can accomplish His work, you know what? We pray. We pray. When Kathy and I were first Christians... 
we were fasting and praying regularly for our family members that they'd come to know Christ and for people we were running into. And, you know, the years got on and, and one thing leads to another, you know, and it's like, well, gosh, when was the last time I fasted? When was the last time we sort of were serious about setting time aside just to pray? And, and be, for a number of reasons that we've just been reminded again, we're, we're fasting and praying again regularly. And I'm totally encouraged. And I feel more confident because I know when we're praying, it's not that we're making God do anything. We're part of what God's doing. And whatever God wants us to be a part of, we cannot bring it about in our power. It is impossible. We need to pray like we know that spiritual transformation occurs only as God the Holy Spirit is involved. That's the deal. If we pray very little, my suspicion is we have very low expectations about what God might want to do. And guys, if it's just what we can carry off, ultimately, it's of no value to God. God's work carried about by His Spirit and His power. And if we know that, we pray. Paul prayed. Read his epistles. He prays for people all the time. He prayed. So we need to be about it. So Paul has this call on his life. When he's challenged, he says, Nope, God's called me as an apostle. You can think anything you want, but I know who I am. I know what I am because Christ has commissioned me. And because God has called me, I also know I'm adequate for the task at hand. No question. No second guessing. Listen to these words I'll close with from Carol Symbola. This is from a book she wrote about 10 years ago called He's Been Faithful. She says, As I swerve in and out of traffic on Brooklyn's busy streets, it's hard to ignore the bumper stickers uh, pasted on every car but mine. If I ever put a bumper sticker on my car, it will probably read, She doesn't know what she's doing. She just keeps doing it. That's the joke about me that circulates in the Brooklyn Tabernacle, the church my husband Jim and I have loved and labored over. She says, I'm an introvert among extroverts, a white woman in an ethnically diverse church, never quite confident I can do what God wants me to, certain in fact that I can't unless God does something. But the beautiful thing is that he does do something time and again, over and over, he comes through. And she says of the choir, our call, our greatest joy is to worship God and to lead other Christians to experience Him in worship. We also want to sing the message of the gospel to those who don't know Christ. So, week after week, we open our hearts to Him, eagerly waiting, painfully aware that if God doesn't come to meet us, we will never accomplish our purpose. Now see, you can take that to the bank. God's not looking for experts You know, if we tower in the world with our credentials, it's meaningless in God's economy. In fact, God's pleased, he said in the first letter to this church, God chooses the humble of this earth. He chooses those who aren't smart and wise. He chooses the fools of this earth. He doesn't choose the wealthy generally. He chooses the poor and the despised. Why? Because it glorifies him, because he raises us up out of the dust, and he uses poor cracked pots, talks about later in this same epistle, Poor cracked pots like us to accomplish his ends. And then we know, wow, that was God because we couldn't pull that off. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd give us a renewed sense of the importance of knowing and serving you. And God, I I pray that you would raise our eyes that we would not be satisfied with status quo, with things as they are. 
Lord, I pray that you would plant in us seeds of discontent such that we want, we must be about your business and Christ's cause. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be diligent studying your word, the truth of the scriptures, Lord, making it a part of who we are and what we are so that we are adequate and prepared. And Father, I pray that you would help us get on our knees regularly as those who know that all spiritual work occurs through your power and not through ours. Father, help us to be participators in your kingdom. Help us to have the lion heart of Paul who knew that he was called by you and knew his sufficiency was in Christ and yet all the same said he labored and disciplined himself like an athlete, Lord, to finish his race well. Help us to do those same things in Jesus' name. Amen.